The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everyone. So glad that you could join us. I am thrilled to death to have back, it's been a couple, three years since we've had her on, to have her back, Britta Belly. She's the editor-in-chief of E! The Environmental Magazine. If you want to check out the online home of her magazine, I invite you to go to her website. It is a really cool website. And don't close this tab in your web browser. Keep listening to us on voiceamerica.com. But open a new tab in your web browser and go to www.emagazine.com. And there you can kind of follow along with some of the things that we'll be talking about. Britta, it is so good to have you on the show again. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm really looking forward to talking with you about the cover story in the current issue of E, the environmental magazine. But before we dive into the details of the article, and I mean, I I learned a great deal from reading it, I'd love for you to tell our listeners what inspired you to write it. Why have the world's oceans been in the forefront of your mind? Well, I mean, the oceans, you know, they cover 71% of the Earth's surface. I mean, they're so important for managing global warming as a food source. I mean, they, you know, impact so many aspects of our lives, and they're really under threat right now um, from so many angles. I mean, ocean acidification, which I wrote about, you know, is one major threat to the oceans, but there's also plastic pollution, there's agricultural runoff, there's overfishing, um, there's the warming waters, which are impacting marine life and causing rising seas. So we have all these impacts happening at once, and it's really... Um, you know, just so important to, to turn our focus to the oceans and the ocean health. Mm-hmm. And I think there are a lot of folks who are going to find this show very revealing because some people who live, you know, in the middle of a landlocked area may not realize what the ocean ecosystem does for their lives. I mean, they just don't understand the impact on our own well-being that the oceans provide. And we're going to dig in deep to that. Um you know, I'd, I'd love for you to talk to us about the role that the ocean plays in removing CO2 from the atmosphere and how this phenomenon actually works. I think that might be new information for a lot of our listeners. Sure. Well, you know, first of all, we have these carbon emissions that are coming from power plants, from drilling operations, deforestation, um, you know, our traffic, our cars and trucks and planes. Um, and these emissions increase in the atmosphere, and the oceans essentially act as a big sponge for about a third of these emissions, um, swallowing them up, essentially, and and that accounts to about 22 million tons per day of carbon dioxide emissions that the ocean takes in. Um, you know, this has served a really important function for keeping global warming in check, um, but it's also had some very serious impacts for the ocean itself, uh, as my piece points out. Mm-hmm. Now, besides the ocean, you say that takes about a third of the carbon emissions. What other ecosystems does the Earth have to help absorb CO2? And talk to us a little bit about the current state of those ecosystems. 
Uh, well, you know, forests are so important, especially these, you know, old growth rainforests, the boreal forests. Um, they store carbon dioxide. Much of it's stored really in the soil of these forests. Um, you know, deforestation, you know, for agriculture, for, um, for logging, for development, uh, has major impacts in releasing these carbon stores. Um, other, other things that store carbon for us are peat bogs, wetlands, um, mangrove forests, and, and also there's a lot of carbon dioxide and, and methane, which are also dangerous for global warming, um, stored in the Arctic ice. And that's been a problem as we've seen global warming increase and some of that ice has, that's begun to melt um, has been releasing those carbon stores and methane stores, and that's also impacting global warming. Now, we, we've heard about much of the, the devastation in terms of uh, massive deforestation in parts of South America and in Africa. And, of course, we know even here in the U.S., uh, we've built over and developed over much of our wetlands. When we diminish those other carbon uh, sequestration ecosystems, how does that impact the ocean? Does the ocean take in more or you know, does it, is it like a sponge where it finally gets just completely saturated and can't take any more of the CO2? How, how does that interplay work? Well, from what I understand um, from the researchers I spoke to, the, the amount of um, emissions that the ocean takes in is, is kind of continually on the rise. And it's thought that eventually they'll be taking in some 85 to 90 percent of all the carbon that's released. Um, so this is, for whatever reason, this is a trajectory where they've, yeah, their portion of taking in this carbon uh, continues to increase. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the more emissions we release, the more that end up in the oceans. And so that this is um, whatever we can do to mitigate these emissions on, on every front is, is good for the oceans. Yeah, there's the there's the output, you know, eliminating some of our sources of emissions, and then there's protecting. The, the ocean's buddies, so to speak, in uh, carbon sequestration, you know, preserving forests and, and uh, wetlands, of course. Well, talk to us about what's happening to the ocean now as a result of all this CO2 that it's removing from our atmosphere. Your article mentions that the ocean is becoming more acidic, but I'm not sure that we all understand what that means. So talk to us about that. Right. Well, one, you know, one of the researchers I spoke to said it's a, it's a little bit like adding carbon to water to make soda. I mean, it can be kind of thought of as that process, um, but there's a specific kind of chemical change that's happening, which is the carbon dioxide reacts with the water molecules. That forms carbonic acid. The carbonic acid then releases hydrogen ions, um, which combine with carbonate ions. The reason that's important is because this, these carbonate ions are needed by many of these creatures that form shells. So shellfish need them, um, oysters, clams, lobsters, and as do coral reefs, they need those uh, carbonate ions to form their exoskeletons. So essentially what we can, the understanding of it is that ocean acidification removes these very essential minerals from the water, um, and these creatures don't have them any longer, and that causes them to die off. Mm-hmm. And then then what happens? I mean, what's what are we seeing in uh, real areas, you know, what's happening uh, on the shorelines? And, and you talked a lot about some of the shellfish farmers, basically, and, and what they're seeing, what they're experiencing. Um, talk to us about that phenomenon. 
Well, these creatures are very sensitive to changes in pH, so the pH is being lowered. Um, and when and right now, you know, it's not that the the oceans as a whole are all um, extremely corrosive. We haven't seen that happen yet. We're on a trajectory for that to happen. But what happens right now that we've seen is that um, following certain events, like a north wind, will bring some of this very acidic water to the surface. And what happened out in the Pacific Northwest was these oyster farmers found. 60% to 80% of their oyster larvae were dying off in these controlled hatchery environments. Um, and they realized eventually by monitoring this water that this is what was happening, that this corrosive water was being brought to the surface. It was coming into their tanks. Um, and the, the oysters were not able to form their shells and were just dying off, you know, in mass quantities. So it's, it's really a, you know, a warning sign of what's to come if the oceans as a whole become this acidic. Um, and we know that it impacts a whole lot of creatures that are just essential for, for the oceans, including plankton, um, these little marine snails known as pteropods, I mean, of course, the coral reefs. So the impacts are, you know, um, the potential impacts are, could be very devastating. You talked in the article, too, about how the, the process that they went through and some of the monitoring devices they were using to figure out what in the world is going on. I mean, they were seeing somewhere in the neighborhood of 80% drops in their larvae content. Um, talk to us a little bit about some of the monitoring and some of the scientific process that was used to actually figure out what was going on. I mean, they're able to monitor the, you know, using these buoys and, uh, you know, to sort of look at how this, um, the pH, to study the pH levels and also to monitor when these, like this north wind is coming in so that they can have t- 24 hours to sort of react, um, fill up their tanks and shut off these intake pipes so that they're not bringing that corrosive water in. So they, by, by doing the monitoring, they are able to, you know, at least in the controlled hatchery environments, um, they're, they're able to work around these, you know, ocean acidity events that, ha- that are happening. Um, but the, the worrisome thing is really that, you know, the oceans as a whole are going to be, you know, the same level of acidity um, as, as we're seeing in these, in these sort of one-off events. And that's what's really uh, concerning because this is, the, this is the path that we're headed down. And the, the impacts would be then on the ocean creatures as a whole, the ones that are not in these controlled hatchery environments and where it's not so easy to mitigate the impacts. Mm-hmm. Any idea uh, what kind of a trajectory we're on in terms of that kind of a ocean-wide event go- happening? I mean, what what are scientists projecting in terms of um, you know increasing levels of acidity and and what have you? I mean, within the next you know several decades, um, you know, thirty to forty years has been um, the number that's been. Uh, quoted a lot in terms of coral reefs, for instance, that we, um, you know, within 30 to 40 years, we could see the end of coral reefs as we know them if we don't bring emissions under control, if we don't um, end some of these stressors that are on them. So, you know, and of course, we're seeing not just ocean acidification, but so many of these other impacts on the oceans as well. Um, And these things are all working together to really um, undermine ocean health. So they all need to be dealt with. But what we're talking within you know, the next few decades, which, I mean, it's really shockingly short time. Well, it, it really is. And I think a lot of people, you know, we, we see how incredibly covered our planet is with ocean water. I mean, we are a blue planet, and the, the oceans are so vast and so deep. There's so much that we can't even explore because they're so deep. 
I'm just, you know, I think it's really difficult to get people's heads around this idea that, um, this whole ecosystem could be dying. Um, how do we raise people's awareness of this? I mean, I, I realize that you put out a cover story on it, but for everyday people, uh, making choices about their carbon emissions, um, it's kind of hard for them to, to uh, relate to, uh, relate their carbon emissions to this huge ecosystem and believe that this really could be happening. Right. I mean, I think, you know, I think that's an important point that, um, that we sort of see the connection between everything, but also, you know, realize that some of these impacts can be dealt with and can be brought under control rather quickly. Others, such as ocean acidification and global warming-induced warming waters, those are things that are almost impossible to reverse. So the, the, it's critical that we kind of focus on the things that we can control. Pollution is one of those. You know, we can control the amount of pollution that's going into the ocean. Um, we can control runoff from farms, which causes these ocean dead zones, and, I mean, which also has major impacts. Um, so it, it's important that I think there's local strategies, you know, um, replanting mangrove forests, um, protecting the wetlands, you know, having these, you know, areas of coastline that are protected and allowing them to thrive and to, and to come back to life. Um, so those are, those are all very important. So kind of dealing with these sort of local strategies and people being aware of the local things, you know, even if it's as simple as, taking part in, in the local beach cleanup. I mean, these are really, you know, these are things that everyone can do, um, and most people have some body of water that's in need of restoration or, or help or volunteers um, in their mm-hmm. own area. You know, the oceans are just so vast on the planet. Isn't there a way, you know, you're, you're talking about these acidic waters that they can monitor and they can see it coming in. Um, is that typically surface water? I mean, uh, how do the currents help churn that, that acidic water through the, you know, through the currents of the ocean? Is it resting on the top? Is it deep? Um, how does that actually work in the stratification of ocean water? And, and is the ocean capable of overcoming these acidic areas and moving them, you know, moving them along? Well, what was happening in the case of, you know, these Pacific Northwest oyster farms was that it was this acidic water that was coming from, you know, the deeper water that was being brought to the surface by the north winds. Um, so this acidic water is, is kind of in the deepest parts of the ocean, um, but it's being brought up and it is being churned up um, where it's having the most impacts. And, you know, as I said before, the oceans themselves can't really – they can't recover from ocean acidification. It's, it's nothing that we can really reverse um, the carbon dioxide that's already in the oceans. Uh, we can only work to prevent further emissions um, and, and to set serious emissions targets to bring our emissions under control globally. I mean, that's, that's really the solution there. Um, you know, uh, there are those local, those local strategies that can reduce some of these other stressors. But in terms of ocean acidification, it's, it's really – not a reversible thing. It's something that we need to we need to bring our emissions under control, and that's really the only solution. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's something that we're going to be talking about in some of the subsequent segments of this show. We're going to be taking a quick commercial break, but when we return, we'll be talking more and more about uh, the carbon that's in our oceans, what that's doing to various life forms. We'll be talking about the importance of those uh, food chain, the, the members of the different uh, ecosystem food chain uh, 
components in the ocean. We'll be talking about coral reefs. So there's much, much more coming up with Go Green Radio right after this. Don't go away. Voice counts. Call toll free 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you ready to change your relationships, your business, your body, and your life? You'll want to tune in to Transformation Talk Radio with host Tony Litster. It's an inspiring hour of conversation, special guests, and wisdom that has made Tony an expert with personal life experience. His down-to-earth style will give you the keys to unlock your greatest potential. Listen for Transformation Talk Radio live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Listening can truly change your life. Come back to your senses. Imagine a radio show that will help you recover your common sense. Host Leah Brenda Smith is a health and wellness specialist who will explain techniques designed to help you recover from the stress of your life. It's all about how you respond to your thoughts. A little bit of self-awareness can go a long way in helping you to relax and enjoy your life. Tune in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio, live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Britta Belly. She's the editor-in-chief of E! The Environmental Magazine. And I encourage you to get out on her website and subscribe to the magazine. I just renewed my subscription this week. I love it. It's such a great uh, resource on what's going on and some of the best research that you can get your hands on. Don't close this tab in your web browser. Keep listening to us on voiceamerica.com, but open a new tab in your web browser and check out her website at www.emagazine.com. Cover story of this uh, this month's uh, uh, print edition is Oceans on Acid. She's talking about the acidification of our oceans based on the ocean's function, which it's always had, of, of sequestering or absorbing CO2 from the atmosphere of the Earth. And, um, of course, this carbon sequestration function isn't 
new. This is something the ocean has been doing for a long, long time. This isn't a burden that was just thrust upon the ocean at the start of the industrial age when humans began putting more carbon into the atmosphere. Britta, there are those who would say that the amount of carbon that humans emit is minuscule compared to things like volcano eruptions and other natural phenomena that the ocean has been dealing with for millions of years. Um, is man-made carbon emission really capable of stressing such a huge ecosystem like the ocean? Well, it definitely is. I mean, you know, levels of carbon dioxide are going up at rates that, you know, has never really been seen before um, in history. I mean, it's, it's, they've risen 30% over the past 100 years. And we are really seeing the, the profound changes that that's having on our environment, you know, across the globe now. Um, you know, the melting Arctic ice, the sea level rise, um, you know, particularly I think that we're seeing it in these extreme weather events that are happening everywhere, um, whether it's droughts, you know, floods, hurricanes, you know, crazy hot summers that we're having in the Northeast. Yeah. Um, so, you know, a, a, across the world we're really seeing the impacts now of global warming that's, a, you know, a direct result of these carbon dioxide emissions. Um, mm -hmm. And it's also the impact on ocean acidification is happening now at a very fast pace. And that's, you know, one of the things that's really we're sounding the alarm about. Um, you know, the only comparable time that scientists found was 56 million years ago. And at that time, carbon, um, carbon in the atmosphere doubled for some mysterious reason. They're not sure why. Um, and drove uh, up ocean acidification and led to a mass extinction. And it's happening now, ocean acidification, at a rate that's 10 times faster than during that extinction period. So, you know, there's, the thinking is that, you know, are we headed towards another mass extinction event? Um, do, can, do we really know the, the long-term consequences of what we're doing? Um, but it, it appears that it could be, um, you know, really dangerous for, you know, the oceans as we know them and for marine life. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the impact that this situation is having on marine life. Uh, maybe we could start with the seafood that we eat, um, those things that uh, humans harvest from the ocean for food. What impact is ocean acidification having on what we would consider human food? Well, I mean, it really, you know, you think of the ocean food web, it really impacts everything. Um, the creatures that are at the very sort of bottom at the, of this food web, we have, you know, pteropods, these tiny marine snails that are not able to form their shells as a result of, you know, in, in this corrosive water. Um, they're a major food source for salmon, for herring, for yellowfin tuna, um, as well as for whales and seals and birds. Um, so... When you impact just, you know, one small creature, it can have major impacts, you know, uh, all across the food web in the ocean. Um, shellfish is, you know, two-thirds of our, uh, the nation's aquaculture is, is in shellfish. So this is kind of our major seafood that we produce in the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. As I was saying before, you know, these oyster hatcheries in the, in the Pacific Northwest, they were losing 60%, 80% of their oyster larvae, um, Natural sets, which are those that are grown outside of this hatchery environment, have effectively ended in the Pacific Northwest. Um, they're not able mm -hmm. to just grow them in the wild any longer. So it's, you know, that's a $270 million industry um, in that region. And, I mean, it just has, you know, major impacts for seafood as a whole, as a, for our economy, and, um, and, and obviously as a, as a source of food as well.
Absolutely. You know, when you're talking to everyday Americans about this, a lot of people might say, well, if I can't have seafood, if we kill it all off, um, I'll just switch to chicken or beef <laughs> if seafood is less available. But for a lot of places in the world, that is just not possible, right? I mean, some civilizations not only depend on seafood for their own food supply, but as a chief export to fuel their economy. So talk some about the impact that ocean acidification is having or could have on the livelihood of people in other parts of the world. Well, it, it's definitely thought that it's going to be these coastal countries, these smaller developing nations particularly, that will be the hardest hit by ocean acidification. Um, you know, we are able to make different choices, different dietary choices. You know, we go to the supermarket and we we can kind of pick and choose. Um, that's not true for a lot of coastal communities around the world. Um, there's a billion people who depend on seafood primarily for most of their protein. So that you know, it's a huge number. It includes uh, the Dominican Republic, Haiti. Jamaica, even Puerto Rico, um, a whole host of, of these what are known as small island developing states. And it's a serious threat, and they don't have the resources in many cases to, to look for other options, um, to, to choose other options. So if they lose uh, seafood as a, as a protein source, I mean, it's going to be a huge, uh, you know, a huge issue in terms of starvation, of, of poverty. I mean, this is, you know, it, it has major impacts. Well, it does. And even in our own country, I mean, it's a huge part of our economy in certain areas as well. I mean, uh, you know, we're already dealing with tough economic times in a lot of the same areas where the main economy or a, a primary part of the economy is seafood. I mean, you look at the Gulf of Mexico and the incredibly difficult impact of the Gulf oil spill um, on that area. It didn't just impact the seafood industry. It impacted tourism and and all those things that depended upon or that were at least closely related to um, the, the body of water that was damaged. And so even in areas of the U.S. where, you know, we can make other food choices, um, you know, we can <laughs> we cannot deny that this is a big part of, of our economic uh, well-being as well. Now, besides the impact on the seafood that humans eat, ocean acidification is having an impact on the entire ocean food chain. You talked a little bit about uh, what's going on with that. Can you give us some more insight as to what's happening with the food chain and what that would mean? I mean, even all the way up to whales and dolphins and, and huge you know, creatures in the sea, they'd be impacted as well. How is that, how is that possible? Well, you know, so many, you know, this is why we call it an ocean food web. I mean, you know, with some of the largest mammals of the sea, they're eating some of the tiniest creatures. Um, and so it's these little kind of tiny creatures we don't think about that can have such an impact. Um, as, I, as I talked about, plankton and phytoplankton, um, krill, these are all things with shells, as well as these pteropods, those tiny marine snails. Um, you know, first the smaller fish eat these tiny creatures, um, then that goes up to the larger fish, the tuna and the cod. Those are eaten by sharks. Um, the whales are eating the krill. The um, you know turtles are eating the fish. Shorebirds are eating the fish. So we it impacts essentially everything. You take one of these creatures out of the picture, and and no one really knows you know how exactly how quickly that would all happen, and and how um, these creatures would adapt. But it could have very, very serious you know, implications in terms of their losing a major food source. Mm -hmm. um, so, it's, so as 
concerned as people are about the shellfish, and we know the immediate impacts it's having on shellfish, um, shellfish can then impact a whole host of ocean creatures. Um, so it's, it's not really just about losing oysters and clams and lobsters, but really all fish and whales and dolphins and seals and, and shorebirds. I mean, this is everything is impacted. You're taking away a food source for essentially every creature in the ocean. Right. And and that's what, you know, where we might be able to switch to chicken or beef, uh, salmon and herring and <laughs> all of the other, you know, ocean food. They can't necessarily make other choices. And if we remove even the smallest yeah. creature from their food chain, uh, it could be quite devastating. You know, there's a section in your article that I found fascinating because truly I don't know that much about uh, coral reefs, but it's called Coral Collapse, and that's a, a section of your article. Talk to us about what's happening to our world's coral reefs and what it is that's causing their demise. Sure. Well, in, in, you know, there's many stressors on the reefs. Um, in terms of what ocean acidification does to reefs, um, it has, it's, it's a similar problem as the shellfish. Um, but, you know, corals are living animals and something that, you know, people often don't think about. Um, is they're built by these tiny polyps. They're like anemone-like creatures that take those calcium carbonate crystals and stack them into the branches that you see. And essentially, they need to stack them faster than the ocean erodes them. And it's a very delicate balance. Um, as when that pH is lowered in the water, they essentially can't keep up the pace. The water is eroding them faster than they can be built. Um, so it, it, you know, leads directly to coral collapse. It's, you know, one of many things that's impacting coral reefs, um, which are so essential. They are essentially the rainforests, you know, of the sea. They um, contribute so much, and they're the home to, to, you know, a million creatures. So this is um, a very, you know, an, another very important place we need to be aware of when it comes to ocean acidification. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I can almost hear some people saying, you know, I'm not really into scuba diving and I really don't care if I ever get to see a coral reef up close. Uh, I'm cool with just seeing pictures in National Geographic. That's good enough for me. Why should I care if coral reefs are endangered? What's your answer to that, Britta? Um, how do coral reefs actually benefit all of us landlubbers up here, you know, in, in a landlocked area? Well, I mean, they, you know, they, they contribute so much. I mean, it's the estimated value of reefs is $29.8 billion per year um, to the global economy. You know, although that being said, I think it's very hard to really quantify the true value of reefs, um, you know, in addition to supporting just a huge number of marine life at some stage in their lives. Um, and it's thought that, you know, one million species call a reef home. Um, it, they also provide um, sources of medicine. I mean, they are um, to treat cancer, HIV, and heart disease. Um, they provide a very important function of preventing erosion, which is, you know, so critical, especially as we're seeing these increased storms that are battering coasts um, and, you know, they're essential in, in terms of they support tourism, they support restaurants, um, mm-hmm. and so many things. So, I mean, it's just so many businesses, um, you know, uh, you know, obviously people who um, make their living on the sea. I mean, it, it, this is just such a critical um, ecosystem and mm-hmm. one that we don't want to lose. 
Absolutely. Well, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll be talking much more about the the benefits that the ocean provides to all of humankind, not just those of us uh, living near a coast. And we'll be talking some more about ocean acidification and why we should all be concerned about that. So, folks, don't go away. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even coworker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Today our guest is Britta Belly. She's the editor of E! The Environmental Magazine, which, by the way, I highly recommend. Uh, I just renewed my subscription this week, and it's a great magazine. For those of you who want to stay abreast of all the latest um, environmental news, whether it's uh, political issues, whether it's ecosystem issues, even products and designs and things that uh, can make your everyday life greener, E, the Environmental Magazine, is a great resource. They also have an awesome web page, so I'd encourage you to check it out. While we're talking to Britta, you can open a new tab in your web browser and go to www.emagazine.com, and there you will find uh, some great bloggers. You will find some awesome articles and uh, just a whole lot of resources that can answer questions from what should I eat to be green to what should I be voting for to be green. It's just everything in 
between. You know, before we went to break, Britta, we were talking about the importance of our coral reef ecosystem, not just because it's home to millions and millions of different uh, marine life uh, forms, but it's also used for uh, medicines that are very important to human beings, uh, everything from HIV medications to cancer medications and what have you. You know, I know that there are many efforts going on locally in different parts of the world to preserve and rejuvenate coral reefs. I'd love for you to give us two or three examples that you're aware of of local management efforts to uh, to do just that. What are some shining examples in the world of coral reef preservation? Well, when, you know, communities want to preserve reefs, they, they can designate them as marine protected areas, and that's a, an effort that's happening across the world. Um, you know, the Great Barrier Reef in Australia is the world's largest coral reef ecosystem. It's over 130,000 square miles. Um, so, and there are major efforts underway there to protect that ecosystem. Um, it's particularly important that they establish these zones and designate certain large portions of that reef um, as a green zone or a no-take zone, which essentially the, almost nothing is allowed there beyond um, diving and underwater photography. I mean, um, so in, this has helped to allow these uh, coral reefs to rebound. Um, they've seen coral trout and, and sea perch um, and other creatures. Um, their numbers have come back up in the Great Barrier Reef. At the same time that this crown of thorn starfish, um, which is a very um, this, this starfish that basically like consumes everything, preys on corals, and proliferates in water that's very nutrient rich, which happens um, with a lot of this agricultural runoff. Um, they've seen these crown of thorn starfish decline um, in the time that this has been protected. So they know that these protections work. Um, there's similar efforts underway in Florida. Um, and in the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary um, is another place where, you know, it, it, it takes the locals working together with federal officials enforcing local regulations, um, in cons- you know, concerning runoff, concerning fishing, and other operations so that they're, um, they're removing a lot of these stressors on these reefs, and, and it has allowed them to rebound. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about that issue of runoff. Uh, how does agricultural runoff impact coral reefs? Well, the runoff, I mean, these, um, the, you know, the pesticides and nutrients from the soil um, that end up in the water, they, you know, uh, they, they also contribute to ocean acidification and changing the, the chemistry of the seas. Um, and they contribute to what's known as these ocean dead zones. Uh, basically, nothing grows except for algae. Um, and and the the water becomes essentially oxygen-starved, um, and nothing can grow there, and no fish live there. And these um, ocean dead zones are on the rise across the world, and, and is something another you know major concern. Um, it's impacting marine life. It's, it's also changing um, the way our oceans you know look and function. And the good thing about um, <laughs> if there is a good thing about, about dead zones is that they can be brought under control. Runoff can be controlled um, simply by you know usually following the very regulations that are already in place. Um, it usually just means that these regulations aren't being enforced, and so that needs to happen. The monitoring needs to be in place, and the, and the regulations need to be enforced. Um, but, but it can be brought under control. Is that something that is 
pretty much a, a contained to the United States, or is that happening in other parts of the country as, or other parts of the world as well? Oh no! I mean, this is how ha- you know this is happening across the world. Um, you know, one of the things that we spoke about there was a there was another article that ran alongside mine um, specifically on mangrove forests in Thailand and how those are being essentially clear cut to make these shrimp ponds. Um, and you know, especially following the the Gulf oil spill. You know, the global demand for shrimp is on the rise, and, you know, the U.S. consumes a lot of shrimp. Um, so they're, you know, increasing the production of these, these shrimp ponds in Thailand, but they're, they're not being built in a sustainable way. The mangrove forests, which are so important as a home for coral reefs, um, as carbon stores, are being essentially just, you know, wiped out, and these ponds are being filled with nutrients and fertilizers and antibiotics um, in a very unsustainable way, and they're, they're basically left... After five years, it's no, they can no longer use it. It's just kind of, um, you know, left and, and, and move on to the next, you know, um, clear-cut forest. So this is, um, you know, I guess this points in, in part to the importance of sustainable fishing, uh, sustainable, you know, shellfish, um, and, and how things are, are being raised mm-hmm. and our awareness of them as consumers. I mean, we really need to know. Um, where our seafood's coming from and how it's being raised because it, mm-hmm. it can have major impacts. What do you think? I mean, are, are local management uh, efforts going to do the trick, or do you think that we need some broader scale mitigation or cooperation um, in order to protect coral reefs and the ocean in general? What What's the solution? You know, I, when I asked this question to experts, they you know they said really both are important. I mean. You need to have these local strategies in place um, because those are things that can be implemented immediately and absolutely can help to reduce some of the impacts. So whether we're cutting back on pollution at a local level, um, you know, cutting back on runoff, uh, you know, anything that we can do on a, on, a local le- on a local level to control, you know, air quality, to control water quality um, is going to have a positive impact on the oceans and, and should be implemented. Um, but when it comes to ocean acidification as it's really a global issue. It's a global problem, and it demands a global solution. And that that solution is setting worldwide emission targets and sticking to them. And you know, unfortunately, there's just has not been a lot of political will to to take this on. Um, it's something that environmentalists have pushed for and hoped for for years. And especially now, I think with the political climate in this country, we just seem so far from that reality happening where we. We're working on some on setting these sort of global emission targets um, and 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 really making that a priority. Um, unfortunately, you know we've seen these environmental issues become so polarized recently um, that it's you know really a lot of our environmental agencies and protections are are really under threat um, by this sort of extreme right wing and, and the extreme direction that the the Republican Party has gone in in recent years. So. It doesn't seem likely that we are approaching that sort of global agreement as important as it is. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think even you know when President Obama was first elected and Democrats had control of the House and Senate, there was great hope that that would be the time that you know we would do all of these great and wonderful things in terms of environmental protection. That didn't happen then either. So I think you know it's it's a tough. Atmosphere and the world from from Kyoto to Copenhagen to Rio keeps looking for the United States to take a position of leadership on this. But that it, I don't know why 
really the rest of the world keeps looking to the United States to do so. We haven't demonstrated that that's a core competency, no matter who's in control of our government, you know, party wise. Um, it seems like the European states are much more of a mindset to take leadership on these types of issues. Why is it up to the United States versus, uh, say, Europe? Why, why are we kind of on the hook for leadership there? Well, I think the reason is because we are producing so much of the emissions. Um, you know, it was only last year that China surpassed the U.S. in terms of global emissions. And, you know, some, you know, people could certainly argue that much of the emissions that are in the oceans right now, um, the, the United States is responsible for. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, you know, it, that's the reason the, the world looks to the U.S. is, you know, you're responsible for this kind of, you're setting this kind of unsustainable standard around the world um, that really others are now looking to emulate. So we're seeing just, you know, the rise in automobile, you know, ownership in, in China and India now and, and just this fast pace of development, at, you know, elsewhere. Um, and people really trying to, I, I think, imitate that, you know, American lifestyle. So it's something that we've sort of exported. Um, but, but most importantly, you know, we really are responsible for so much of these emissions and for us to not... Um, to not set these targets and to not pro- provide a leadership role really means that no real progress will be made um, without the United States involved. Mm-hmm. And how much of that do you think is because we have a perception of being a wealthy enough country, which, you know, maybe before 2008 that might have been <laughs> the case, but that we're wealthy enough to invest more than other countries in the research and development in clean technologies and what have you? I mean, is it is it more about our responsibility for the carbon that's already out there, or is it really more about who's got the money, kind of the Jerry Maguire at all, show us the money to fix this for the world? Um, sometimes I feel like we are the ATM machine of the world for these kinds of issues. Well, I mean, it's certainly true that, um, you know, the United States has resources to deal with some of the impacts of global warming and ocean acidification and in these other crises um, and the extreme weather events that happen as a result of global warming, for instance, that these smaller developing nations don't have. So what for us would be, you know, a very expensive headache would be for another country just devastating. Um, and we've seen this already happen in Haiti and elsewhere um, where these communities can't rebound from um, these, you know, major impacts and these major storms, droughts. Um, you know, if, if a wholesale loss of seafood would mean, uh, you know, certain death for certain, for coastal communities. I mean, this isn't, so these aren't things that they can rebound from. Um, so I, I think there, there is some sense of responsibility that, there as well, that the things that we are doing, the emissions that we're contributing to, are having these impacts across the world on communities who, who aren't living these unsustainable lives, I mean, who aren't putting these emissions into the air, but who are dealing with the devastating consequences um, of those emissions. So I think there is a responsibility there to those communities and um, and certainly that that we have the resources, um, you know, to at least put some measures into place now. And you know, controlling emissions is not necessarily about spending money. I think this is really about um, you know setting targets and and moving you know from our current unsustainable economy to a more sustainable one, moving away from our dependency on fossil fuels to you know renewable energy. So. Um, so really shifting our economy as opposed to, you know, decimating our economy. 
Mm-hmm. Well, it, it begins to sound like a, a moral issue when we speak of it in that way. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, so we're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll talk more about what could be done to reduce the carbon in the air, which is causing this ocean acidification, and uh, more and more about the responsibility and some of the solutions that may be out there that could be brought to fruition in our lifetime. Don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Racism. Healing. Oneness of humankind. It is time to join millions of people all over the world who openly talk about racial healing. Some of us are not sure how to tread when discussing race and culture. Until now, tune in to A Safe Place to Talk About Race with host Sharon E. Davis. Engage with experts and notables. Have a question but are not sure how to ask it? Test it out with our show. It's a safe harbor to explore views and situations that we face every day. A Safe Place to Talk About Race airs live every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, if you happen to just be joining us. Our guest today is Britta Belly. She's the editor-in-chief of E! The Environmental Magazine. Love it, by the way. I'm a big fan. If you want to check out the online home of E! The Environmental Magazine, don't close this tab in your web browser. Keep listening to us on voiceamerica.com. But open a new tab in your web browser and go to www.emagazine.com. And if you love what you see there as much as I do, subscribe. The print issue is sustainable. It's, you know, you don't have to feel guilty about getting something with paper in the mail. Uh, it's all good. In fact, Britta, tell us why we're, we're good to go with your print edition. Give us, give us a quick commercial on why people should subscribe to eMagazine. Well, you know, e-magazine has been around more than 20 years, so I think that we've been covering environmental issues a lot longer than many publications, um, and that's given us really just, you know, a deep well of, of resources, um, you know, connections to environmental groups and their campaigns, um, you know, a, a real 
broad understanding of the issues and sort of the trajectory of these things and, and how they've progressed over time, whether it's global warming, renewable energy, you know, electric cars. Um, you know, we've covered these things over and over again through the years. Um, and, of course, you know, we really try to connect people to things that are, are of concern to them in their daily lives. So we have this green living section, which touches on, you know, things you can do in your home, low VOC paints, for instance, um, and, and organic gardening and, um, you know, eco-style and, and new fashions that are coming out and um, green travel and green investing, um, you know, health and eating right topics. So we kind of run the gamut. We, we touch on, I think, a lot of topics that are really just very useful to people and, and cut through a lot of the greenwashing that's out there to let people know, you know, here's what's really a concern. Here are companies that you can really trust. Um, here's what you need to know and how you can connect to, um, to, to resources and actions happening in your area. Well, I think you said a mouthful when you said that, you know, you guys have been doing this for a long time. About 10 years ago, uh, you know, that you started to see some of the, uh, some, some groups and some, uh, companies spring up because green was the new black. It was cool. It was trendy. Um, and the perception was that there was money in it. And some of them have gone away. Some of them have sold out. You guys remain so pure, so research-based, and so trustworthy that um, I really do. I really do love your magazine. Well, let's get back to oceans and ocean acidification because that's the cover story of this uh, most recent edition. In your article, you had kind of an inset where you interviewed Rob Jackson, uh, Dr. Rob Jackson, global environmental change guru at Duke University. And you asked him, what are the big strategies that the U.S. would need to put in place to seriously curtail emissions? And he identified two things, vehicle emissions and power generations. And it, this is just my opinion. Feel free to argue with me. would love it if you did. But at the end of the day, I feel like we've got all kinds of government policies on these two issues. But what really drives the carbon emissions in these two areas are the behaviors of individual Americans, um, what transportation choices we make, how much power we consume. And sometimes I wonder if environmental groups are spending too much of their time and money by pushing elected officials to sign more policies or instead if they shouldn't be spending more of their time with their fellow Americans persuading them to make low carbon choices. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I, you know, unfortunately, this lobbying really is important. I mean, certainly the environmental, you know, groups can't ma- even come close to matching the lobbying dollars of polluting industries. Um, but these polluting industries have so much sway over our national policies, and I think that it would be dangerous to to not at least try to keep up that fight, um, you know, at, at the national level when it comes to legislation. Um, you know, we so often see that there's, there's ways that, um, you know, our environmental protections can be undercut in a very, you know, kind of quiet way. Um, and, and there's many groups that are looking to do that because it's hurting their industries, um, the fossil fuel industries in particular. So I think it is important to keep up the fight on the national level. We, we want to really see, you know, a, a national move away from, um, you know, a fossil fuel-based economy. Right now we're seeing so much in the area of natural gas drilling, um, you know, this hydraulic fracturing or fracking in various communities, and that's sort of unfolding very rapidly and without a lot of protections in place. So that's one place currently that, um, you know, people need to be concerned about, concerned about their drinking water and the long-term emission consequences of all this increased drilling. 
Um, you know, we see the Keystone XL pipeline. There's been a lot of publicity around that, um, and, and fortunately, um, you know, has, has not gone through thanks to a lot of public pressure and a lot of raising of public awareness. So I think it has to happen on both fronts. You know, there has to be this grassroots movement um, where you see people really going down to Washington and, and as, as with the Keystone XL pipeline from, from Canada to Texas. They're trying to build this tar sands pipeline. Um, you know, you're seeing people really getting out on the street and getting the word out and online and um, so through social media. But also there needs to be the pressure kept on in Washington um, to really, you know, for these major legislative changes that need to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't disagree with you there. Um, I just think... As you said, the more that we can bring it to the masses, like we saw with the Keystone XL pipeline, uh, and bring this information, bring videos of what's going on, and, and raise people's awareness, the, the better off we'll all be. You know, sometimes when we talk about topics like saving the ocean or reducing carbon emissions and these huge issues on Go Green Radio, my fear is that our listeners might become overwhelmed and feel like, these problems are way bigger than than any individual and they really can't make a difference. And the funny thing is, is that a lot of the actions that we talk about that could save the ocean are the same ones that would reduce air pollution, address climate change, reduce the amount of waste we send to landfills and a whole host of other environmental issues that we're facing right now. What I'd love for you to do in the minute that we have left is give our listeners a couple of things that they can do to be part of the solution to what we've been talking about, ocean acidification. Just give us something that each one of us could do that will really make a difference. Well, I think what's important is just to look at the ways that our actions impact ocean health overall. Um, you know, reducing our use of plastics is important. Um, you know, definitely using a reusable bottle as opposed to bottled water, um, reusable gro- grocery bags instead of those plastic bags, a lot of which end up in the oceans. Um, being conscious of what you're putting on your lawns, the chemicals that wash down storm drains and end up in the ocean. Um, and, and finally, really supporting sustainable fisheries um, and being conscious of the seafood that you're eating. So um, I would recommend that people check out uh, the Monterey Bay Aquarium has a mm-hmm. seafood watch uh, guide, and it's also available as a downloadable app. And, I mean, that's just really great. It's something that you can take with you. So when you're at a restaurant or you're at the supermarket, um, you can really make the most sustainable choices. And all of those things are going to help impact the overall ocean health um, and make the oceans better able to deal with the ocean acidification until we can bring emissions under control. Perfect. Well said. Thanks so much for being with us, Britta. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to Go Green Radio. We'll be here same time, same place next week. So until then, have an awesome week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.